You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Hey, we're going to be in the book of Job today, and uh, we're going to do something I've never done, which is cover 16 chapters in one sermon. So please have a Bible in front of you, whether that's the one under your seats, the one on your phone, the one you brought with you. It's going to be really important that you have the scriptures in front of you. This is not a three points in a poem kind of a sermon. The Bible's not really a three points in a poem kind of book. but So we're going to be going through 16 chapters today from the book of Job. I'm going to very briefly cover where we've come so far so you can see the, the overarching narrative thus far in the movements of the book. And then we're going to be going through the second and third cycles of speeches back and forth between Job and his friends. And I'm going to just focus on a key, you know, three to five verse passage in each one that really unpacks what's going on uh, for two reasons. One, they really just kind of keep cycling back over and over, back and forth. They don't advance the argument any further in the second and third cycles, really. Some new things maybe will pop up here and there and we'll, we'll spot, pause and focus on those when we get to them. But for the most part, Job's friends aren't really able to come up with anything new from the first cycle that, uh, that pa- uh, Pastor Josh preached on three or four weeks ago. So by giving you the overarching superstructure, hopefully going to build a framework so that you, uh, whether it's this week, this month, sometime later in life, can read through the book of Job and see really specific things that are said, really specific details, see the examples or the metaphors that are brought up, and you'll have this framework that you can plug those things in. And so by giving you the forest, you then will be able to make sense of each tree uh, as you go back and do some of your own study, if that makes sense. Alrighty? If you want to go to the next slide, here's where we've gone so far. In chapters 1 and 2, God and Satan are basically having this kind of contest. Does Job really love God because he's God? Or because of all the stuff he's given and his family? Or because of his good health and protection? So they make this wager, and on two different accounts, first, Job is stripped of all of his personal wealth, and his family is killed when the house collapses on his children, and his servants are destroyed, totally wiped out. But Job remains faithful. He holds fast to his integrity and does not curse God. And so Satan goes, well, that's really because he actually only cared about himself. He didn't actually care that much. I mean, he's, he's probably hurting that he lost that stuff, but he's just glad that he didn't get hurt. So if you were to have, afflict him personally with disease or something like that, then he would curse you to his face. So Job gets these loathsome boils all over his, his body. He sits down on an, a dung heap, a, a garbage pile, and scrapes those sores with a piece of broken pottery. And he still holds fast to his integrity. He doesn't curse God and die, even though his wife is kind of encouraging him, like, just, just give up at this point. Life's, life's gotten pretty low. Then in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, his three friends of his show up. Uh, Bildad, Elihu, uh, sorry, not Elihu, Eliphaz, and Zophar. They come from across the region. They sit and they comfort him by just being present with him. They don't say anything for seven days. And then Job kind of cries out. He just lets loose all the things that he's feeling in his soul. And his friends kind of use that as an opportunity to step in then, starting in chapter four, and try to reason with him and help him make sense of what he's experiencing. Help him to make sense and interpret the suffering that he's going through. Why did this happen? That's the question. Why, did, why was I even born if these terrible things were going to happen to me, God? It's kind of the question that Job cries out with in chapter 3. And so the first cycle of speeches, verses 3 to 14, 
are just this back and forth between Job and his friends, and they're trying to convince him of this thing we call the retribution principle. Retribution is like where you get vengeance on somebody, or you could think of like tit for tat, quid pro quo, where like you do something bad, so a bad thing happens to you. You do something good, the good thing happens to you. That's the framework Job's friends have. So saying, Job, something bad happened to you, therefore you must have done something bad too. This would not have just happened to you if you were this righteous and blameless guy. But back and forth, Job persists in saying, no, 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 no. Like, I really haven't done anything wrong. I've trusted God. I've honored him. I've taken care of, of others. I've loved my neighbor, right? And so we come to the end of the first cycle, and Job is still maintaining, no, I haven't done anything wrong. But his friends aren't going to give up quite yet. So if you want to turn to Job chapter 15, this is the start of the second cycle of speeches. We call them cycles because they mirror each other in their structure. It'll go Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job, end of cycle. And then it just repeats itself and repeats itself. And so that gives you a pretty clear superstructure to kind of hang some of these things on. And like I said, we're going to go through chapter by chapter, starting in verse 15, and cover a lot of the highlights and look at some key summary texts for each person's speech. And it's going to feel kind of like a whirlwind because they're bringing all sorts of stuff at Job. Job's countering with all sorts of stuff. And so if it kind of feels like this argument is going nowhere, that's because it is. It's, it doesn't go anywhere, as we're going to find out when we get to the end here. So take a look at, at Job chapter 15, kind of explain how this is going to go. We're going with Eliphaz first. Eliphaz accuses Job for not fearing God. Everyone there? Fantastic. So in chapter 15, this is the start of the second cycle, Eliphaz starts to turn kind of mean almost. He started back in cycle one with like, hey, Job, if you, if you just hear me out, let me help explain what's happened to you. But as the cycles going on, go on, Eliphaz and actually all of Job's friends are going to become actually like less and less friends to him. They're going to be less and less sympathetic to Job. Take a look at verses one to six for me here. These kind of open up and really capture the whole chapter. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you're doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. So now Eliphaz literally calls Job a windbag. Like all this speech has just been nothing. You're just spouting words. And, they, and the, your own words are testifying that you, you surely have done something wrong. And so he's accusing Job, no, 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 I'm not going to let you off that easy. You've protested that you're innocent, but surely that's not the case. And again, these are Job's friends, right? They came and they sat with him and comforted him. Look at how this has turned. Think about what that would mean to you to receive that word from a friend who has come to comfort you. Maybe like in the hospital, something terrible has happened to you. They're visiting you in a home because a really close loved one has died. And your, your best friend who was there, for seven days, is now saying, nah, you deserve this. You did something wrong. Let that, let that sit on you, because that's the kind of things that's gonna, we're going to see all day long. So then Job responds in chapter 16. Look at that now. I told you we're going to move fairly fast. We're going to land on chapter 28 and sit there for quite a while, because it's the center of the book. But in chapter 16, Job, he's now pushing back too. He's going to start throwing some punches a little bit. Look at verse 1 to 3. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. 
Right? You, guys are, you guys are worthless friends. You're not comforting me at all. Shall windy words have an end? Or that provokes what provokes you that you answer? Like, why would you say that? Right? He's feeling the pain of his, his friend's scathing rebuke against him. Then drop down in verses 12 to 14. This is what Job is feeling on the inside. Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your... Oh, sorry, that's verse, chapter 15. Chapter 16, sorry, verse 12. I was at ease, and he, this is God, broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surrounded me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. This is how Job's feeling about his relationship with God. That after all of this suffering, that God is assaulting him like warriors besieging a castle or like archers using him as target practice. Every word from his friends, every insult, every bad thing that's happened to him is like being pierced through with arrows. And the source of all of it, he feels like, is from God. He then goes on in verses 19 to 21. This is a theme we're going to see pop up four times today where he's going to know, like he's, re- he's starting to realize, my friends don't have the answers. I've got to get to the throne room. I've got to get to the courtroom of God and talk to him face to face because my beef isn't, isn't really with my friends. Anymore. Like they don't, they're not helping me out. I've got to get to heaven. So take a look at chapter 16, verse 19. He says, even now, behold, my witness... Right? Who's on his side? Who's his advocate? Who's going to testify that he's righteous? Is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with the neighbor. He's like asking that God would intercede and prove to his friends that he's innocent. He's asking, like, God, you're on my side. You're the, my advocate. You're my, te- you're my witness. You could testify that I really haven't done anything wrong. And like I said, it's going to build, actually. Three more times this morning, we're going to see him crying out that, like, ah, I need a heavenly intermediary. I need a heavenly go-between. And as those of us on the other side of the cross know that we really do have someone like that, the man Jesus Christ, who stands before God as our, our representative. He presents his priestly offering of his own soul on the cross and perfect righteousness before the Father and testifies to our righteousness. But Job doesn't know that yet. Job's living B.C., before the cross. That's not what B.C. actually stands for, but it's a helpful reminder. So he's, he doesn't know that he can have that before the Father, and so he's crying out, if only I had someone to testify for me and represent me before God. He continues in chapter 17. Job's speech gets two chapters. In chapter 17, verses 13 to 16, he's basically given up on life. There's no more reason for him to live. Listen to this. If I hope for Sheol as my house, that's the place of the dead. That's the place of the underworld. If I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? He's like feeling like my whole life is just, the next thing for me is death, and then the underworld, separation from God. There will be no hope for me there if, if that's where I end up. So he's, met, he's almost meditating on the end of his life. First Peter 3 through 4 has a little bit of a rebuke here against, uh, against, uh, against Job that we can point to. 
I don't think I have it on the screen, so don't turn. First Peter 3, I'm just going to read it to you. First Peter 1, 3 to 4. Oh, disregard. Never mind. I don't know why this is in my notes. Rewind the tape. Zoop. That's right. <laughs> so he's crying out, my soul is headed toward Sheol, toward the underworld. I'm just, my hope's, my hope's given up. There's no reason to live. Now Bill is going to jump in, chapter 18. Keep moving with me. And he's going to just rehash the retribution principle that we heard in chapters 3 to 14. This is not going to add anything. He's just going to restate everything he just said. It's kind of like a, uh, like a broken record, right? You ever been in an argument with somebody who just repeats the same thing over and over again? And you're like, I heard you, but <laughs> that's not logical, or that doesn't make sense, or I don't agree with that. This is Bildad. So look at chapter 18, verses 17, sorry, 7 to 11. This is the example. This is, he's going to use some great imagery here of what he believes. This is how the world works. He's trying to help Job make sense of his suffering and experience. Chapter 18, verse 7. His strong steps are shortened. The he in all these is, is the wicked man. His strong steps are shortened. His own schemes throw him down, for he is cast into a net by his own feet. Look, listen to all this language of entrapment. He walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. Can you imagine being chased by hounds, like you are the prey, and, and God himself is the hunter chasing after you to capture you in your wickedness? That's the way Bildad thinks the world works. If something bad happens to you, you got trapped, you got caught up in some sort of suffering, it's because you deserved it, and this is what happens to all wicked people. And Job has already pushed back on this, and we're going to push back on this today, that that's just not how the world works. It's not that simple. Sometimes it does work that way, but we know for a fact, we the reader know that's not the case in Job's instance, because in chapter one it told us that he was upright and blameless in all his ways, he feared the Lord, and he was devoted to God in piety and righteousness perfectly. This is not what's happening to Job, and yet his friends are insisting, no, you must have done something wrong. Look now at verse 18 to 21 in chapter 18. This is the final fate of all the wicked. He is thrust into light, from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity, that's children, or progeny among his people, and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at this day, and horror seizes them of the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God. And we're going to see throughout this that like, there is some truth to what they're saying because we know like at, at the end of days, when the Lord returns, that is exactly the fate of the wicked, that they will be cut off from this world. They'll have no hope. They will have no future, right? But the way that these, these friends of Job are thinking is that that is what happens now, that all of God's justice is going to happen and be worked out in our current lives. But as Christians, we know that's not the case, and Job knows that too. That's just not how the world works. The righteous do suffer, and sometimes the wicked do prosper. And so this theme, this is the tension here, is when does that happen? When does it come upon us that the, the righteous are accepted by God through their faith in Christ and given everlasting blessedness and peace in his presence? And when are the unjust punished and cut off from God? In this life or the next? And that's, that's a big tension here. These friends don't, don't get the right answer. So turn to chapter 19 now. Job is going to reply here, not so much to Bildad. He doesn't really have anything to say to him. He's just repeating the same stuff. 
he's again kind of going to get a little introspective and let us know what's going on in his own soul. Look at chapter 19, verses 13 to 19. This is the relational brokenness that he's been having. Verses 13 to 19 in chapter 19. He, that is God, has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is estranged to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. Have you ever felt that in the midst of your suffering, that you were abandoned by those you hoped to be closest to? That's certainly been the case with Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, but Job's going even further. It almost seems like everyone in his life, his wife, his brothers and sisters, the young children in his town or village, whatnot, everyone is kind of pushing back against him and ignoring him or talking against him or speaking falsely of him, that they too may be caught up in this same belief that, well, Job, this is a terrible thing that has happened to you. You must be cursed by God. You must have done something wicked and awful. And they're, t- they're turning away from him and abandoning him. And he has no one left to turn to at all. So then go to chapter, stay in chapter 19, verses 23 to 27. These are very famous words. They're from Handel's Messiah, actually. No, I'm just kidding. Handel Messiah. I took them from Job. Um, <laughs> And uh, so he has no one left to turn to. Who is he turning to in his anguish and sorrow? Chapter 19, verses 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my faint, my heart faints within me. So even though he's been abandoned by absolutely everyone, he still is holding some category for the righteousness and faithfulness of God. That even though everyone believes I've been cursed and abandoned by God, and I have at times felt and said the same thing, I know that the only one who can redeem my life from this terrible circumstance is God himself. And there's this beautiful language there of resurrection, Even though my flesh will be destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So Job knows, like, even if I do go down to the pit, even if I go to Sheol, there's a category in his mind of resurrection that actually God will restore to me my life, and I will see him, the one who can redeem me, who can vindicate me, who can save me face to face. Again, this is the second time that he's looked to heaven. This is his only source of hope and his only chance of moving forward through this situation. In chapters 20, Zophar is going to speak up, and Zophar is just going to rehash the retribution principle again. Broken record. Look at chapter 20, verses 26 to 29. Listen to this language, this this imagery. First, we heard from uh, Bildad, language of like being trapped, being caught, being hunted by God. That's the fate of the wicked in this life. Now there's going to be a new imagery, new language for how God persecutes and crushes the wicked in this life from Zophar. Chapter 20, verses 26 to 29. Utter darkness is laid up for his, the wicked man's, treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. 
What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Everything Zophar just said is true. It's just not true of what's going on with Job. This is the destiny. This is the fate of the wicked man, that they will receive payment back for their iniquity. For those who have not turned to Christ, placed their faith in him, repented of their sins, those people who are still living in rebellion against God, who have not turned to Christ as Lord and Savior, this is their fate. Fire will consume them. All of their treasure will be destroyed. Heaven and earth will rise up against them, and they'll be dragged off. That's their portion. That's true. It's just not what's going on in the here and now in Job's present life. Can you see how easy it is for their words, to, have, especially because they have a hint of truth in them, to have such a biting, destroying effect on Job's soul? And we have to be very careful as well as we're comforting our brothers and sisters anytime they go through some kind of trial or suffering. It could be very, very great like what Job's going through. It could be quite mild. It could be a career change. It could be like a small relational issue with a spouse that we don't bring our theology to bear on the wrong thing or in the wrong way and actually do more harm than good as we're trying to be comforters to our friends. Take a look at Job 21 now. This is the end of cycle two, Job's final response. Chapter 21. And Job's basically going to cry out, you're wrong. That's not the way it works. And he's also going to start to kind of question God a little bit. Look at chapter 21, verses 7 to 15. This is rings from Psalm 37. So if you have time this week, I'd encourage you to go read that psalm. The phrase from the Beatitudes where Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the earth. That line comes from Psalm 37. The whole psalm's about that. That like right now it looks like the wicked are prospering. Don't worry. Just fear God. Keep his commandments. Love, love him. Delight yourself in him. Trust him. He'll sort it all out at the end. That's what the psalm's all about. This language very much echoes that. Chapter 21, verses 7 to 15. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? You're wrong, You're wrong so far. Their offspring are established in their presence. Their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. And no rod of God is upon them. Like everything you just said isn't true. And we can all see this. We all know people in Rapid City or in our own lives who are wretched human beings, who are living in flagrant rebellion against God and have seemingly prospered. They've gotten wealthy. They've gotten power and influence. They've gotten away with it. Or we can think globally of celebrity figures or powerful figures, maybe in politics or, or the international scene in, in one way or another, economics, and just say, business, corporations, whatever, how can those people get away with it? It certainly seems like the wicked are prospering. Job knows that's just not how the world works, that the wicked always get crushed and the righteous always prosper. That's not how it works. Keep looking at verse 10. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and doesn't miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace. They go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We don't desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? Then what profit do we get if we pray to him? They're, they're just flagrantly acknowledging, like, who's this God? I don't need him. I don't need him in my life. And in every way, it looks like they've won. They're succeeding. 
in life. Their children are prospering. Economically, they're doing quite fine. They're safe. They're secure. And that feels so unfair. It feels so unfair to us. How could God let this happen? So if we have these temporal perspectives on just the next 50 years, we're going to be almost outraged or vindictive about God's sense of justice. Bring justice now. But God does not delay in giving justice. There's a little bit of a, a rebuke here that we can turn to from 2 Peter. Maybe this is what I meant a few minutes ago. In 2 Peter chapter 3, you can turn to the next slide. The text will be up here. When you feel like God's justice is not happening, how on earth could this person get away with X, Y, Z? This is a remi- the, the first century Christians felt this. They were being persecuted by their Jer- Jewish brothers and sisters, being kicked out of the synagogues, being attacked in the streets, being cut off from economic guilds and trading opportunities, and then straight up persecuted by the Roman Empire in local instances. They felt, God, how, where are your people? We're the people of your Messiah. We are following him. Where are you? Where are you, God? This is Peter's rebuke to them, to slow down and think with an eternal perspective. This is 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. So you and I think, God, I can't believe you haven't come back yet and, and fixed this whole mess. And Peter's saying, no, he's not being slow, as you and I count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there's a little glimmer of a, an answer to a why question. Why does God allow this to go on? One answer is, he actually doesn't want the wicked to perish. He wants to see them repent and turn from their ways. God wants to see sinners reconciled to himself through his son. And so Peter's saying here, actually, your suffering, you being patient in trial, you being patient in the face of injustice, is giving other people time to turn, repent, and trust in the Lord. And that's, I don't know, that, that gives me a little bit of a sense of duty almost, or or, you know, a long, eternal thing that I can hold on to, even in the midst of my suffering, or, or when I see the way the world's going, whether that be here locally or abroad, in our nation, other parts of the globe, right? Like, God, just crush Vladimir Putin, end this Ukraine war thing. That's, that's crazy, right? Before we all get nuked to death, right? And God's saying, like, one of the reasons why I haven't yet is actually so that some, some Russian soldier will have time to repent and believe the gospel, Right? Or, or apply that to any sort of thing going on in our lives. God is saying, one of the reasons why I've delayed in returning to set things right is actually because I love human beings and I want them to be reconciled to me through my son. But, verse 10 in 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So don't fret, children of God. The day is coming where God's terrifying wrath and anger and righteousness and justice towards ungodliness and wickedness that we have all been saved from if we've trusted in Christ. Christ bore that for us on the tree. But if we're not in Christ, if we haven't repented and believed, this is our fate, that one day everything we've done will be exposed and God's justice will come like a thief in the night. And so hold on to these two, these two truths here, that God is delaying so that some will be saved, but he's not going to delay forever, and he will come 
when we don't expect it. So you can turn back to Job with me now. Well, you're probably still there. I turned, <laughs> and I'll have to find it. Job's going to move on into cycle three, and cycle three is just going to kind of devolve. You ever been in an argument where like you and everyone involved is still talking, but you're just talking over each other, and like some people are walking out the door while they're talking and just yelling over their shoulder? That's what cycle three feels like. Like the whole thing is just devolved. They doesn't feel like they're friends anymore, and they're going to get downright ornery. We start in verse chapter 22. Eliphaz, again, is going to start off the third cycle. And again, this is just going to feel like a nasty argument. It's just, they're not like trying to help Job anymore. Now they're like mad at Job. Look at this from Eliphaz's mouth in chapter 22, verses 5 to 9. Is not your evil abundant? He's talking to Job. There is no end to your iniquities. You have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. And you have set away widows empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. What a terrible accusation to love against Job. We know that's not true. And yet Eliphaz has just turned nasty against Job and saying, you, you sent away widows hungry and crushed the arms of orphans. What a terrible accusation against Job. These guys used to be friends. They used to be friends. And yet the struggle to make sense of Job's suffering and the meaning in his life has actually turned them against each other in a really awful way. Turn to chapter 23 now. Job replies, but almost just to God, not, not really back to, to Eliphaz. Look at chapter 23, verses 3 to 7. Here's the third time we've seen Job looking to heaven for his only hope, his only source of answer, the only way he's going to be able to vindicate himself and be proven righteous. Chapter 23, verses 3 to 7. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That's God. That I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he, that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. So he knows, if I could just stand before God, if I could have an audience with God, I could clear my name of all this and prove you guys wrong. And as we're going to move through in the next couple weeks, Job's going to get his wish. It's not going to go exactly like he thinks. But for now, Job has realized his friends have turned on him, the only way of making sense of his experience is if he can get into the throne room of God himself. But in chapter 24, look now at chapter 24, Job continues going. Verse 12, a little bit of doubt seems like it's seeking in in Job. Right? He's, he's hold, held the line, he's held fast to the integrity, he hasn't cursed God. There has been some questioning of God's goodness, or like why, how could this possibly be, be reasonable? And in chapter 24, 12, he says this, from out of the city, the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cries for help, yet God, God charges no one with wrong. It's like he, he thinks God is just turning a blind eye to the wicked. And so Job here is, is stepping into territory he doesn't quite understand, and he really should be quiet, and yet he's bringing an accusation against God that God's ignoring the suffering and injustice in this world, and Job is going to be rebuked for it uh, when, when God finally speaks to him in chapters, uh, I think, 38 to 41. So he's starting to question God's justice a little bit. Look at chapter 25 now. Bildad responds. 
with a very short speech. Notice this is only six chapters. It's like he's run out of things to say. And he's going to totally change his tune. Read chapter 25. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heavens. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? Job, how could you possibly stand in his presence and argue your innocence? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm? So he's almost just kind of throwing in the towel here. Like, and he's like on the way, his way out the door, just going, you know what, actually, we're all wicked. We're all unjust, and we all deserve to be crushed by God. None of us are righteous. None of us are going to be able to stand before him and argue our case with him. Man's just a worm, which is squarely contradictory to Psalm 8 that we read this morning, where the psalmist actually exalts God for saying, you have set man just a little lower than the heavenly beings and given him dominion and honor. Like, that's crazy that God would do this. And so Bildad's going like, no, we're just worms. We're just dirt creatures. And we're, we're nothing before God. Zophar, sorry, Job replies in chapter 26. And this is the end of his cycle three. There's no Zophar. So, so far, he's left the building, or he's left the trash heap. Uh, he's given up. He doesn't even respond. You can just see, like, cycle three, the speeches just deteriorate. The whole conversation falls apart. And so Job's final response to his friend's speeches is found in chapter 26. He mocks Bildad, chapter 26, verse 2. How you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom. He's just, like, mocking him. Like, oh, yeah, you are such a great comforter. You really helped me out here. And then he extols God's greatness as creator. All right? His power over all kinds of things to set up the universe. But here's the, here's the like irony of this. God is so great. He's outside of creation, fills creation. He has created all things, set up the heavens and the earth. But look at verse 14. Here's Job's protest in chapter 26, verse 14. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his way, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power who can understand. So Job's saying, even though God is so great and powerful and magnificent and incredible, we like barely even hear a whisper from him. Where is he? I want to speak with him. Again, he's appealing to heaven. God, answer me, right? Come down, descend to my level and make this right. Tell me what's going on. Tell me why I've had to suffer like this. Well, Job continues in chapter 27. It says that Job holds fast to his integrity, but his friends and his friends have failed to put him in the wrong. Look at chapter 27, verse 6. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So he's still clinging to the fact that he's innocent. He has done nothing wrong. He's not wicked. He's not unrighteous. He has always loved and served God. And we're going to see in later chapters, I'll just spoil it a little bit, that that's not quite the case. Job is going to get rebuked. We know before his suffering came upon him that he had done nothing wrong. That when he lost his whole family, when all of his herds were slaughtered and servants were wiped out, we know that when uh, he was afflicted with boils, none of that had anything to do with God's, Job's righteous or unrighteous behavior. But through, as he moved through these speeches, there are times in which he's spoken ill of God, or he's questioned God in some way. And so Job's not quite telling the truth here 
anymore at this point as he comes to the end of his speeches. But Job does acknowledge some force of the retribution principle in verses 13 to 23. He does kind of acknowledge, hey, the world does generally work this way, that, that the wicked suffer and the righteous prosper. And it's kind of hard to figure out why he's, why he's come around to that, even though he's protested against that so madly as his friends have brought that up. Turn now to verse 28. We're going to sit here longer than we have on any of the other chapters. Most commentators see this as like the center of the book or like the first climax, the second being when God is going to finally answer Job. And it's almost like right, the, the author has been speaking you know, through the voice of Job. It's almost like the personality of Job is going to like get really thin or even pass away. And this is almost like the author just stepping forward to say, like, give us his own thoughts, okay, in a really strategic part of the poem here. So look at chapter 28. It, fits, it breaks into three really easy chunks, verses 1 to 11, and then verses 12 to 19, and then verses 20 to 28. And we're just going to take those chunks at a time. But keep in mind, right now, Job and his friends have totally failed to make sense of why. Why has this happened to me? No one's had any answers. And so the great question hanging over this whole chapter is, where can wisdom be found? Where can I find answers to my suffering? Look at chapter 28. I'm going to read 1 to 11. We'll take them, the three chunks one at a time. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. Right? Imagine miners like deep under the earth traveling through caves or mine shafts, hanging, hanging like pendulums from rope as they're being lowered down into the depths of the earth. It's crazy to think about. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. So kind of in contrast to Bildad, man is not a worm. We're like the greatest of all creatures. No other creature can even begin to do this. They don't have the skill, the wisdom, the craftiness to go hunting for gems and gold and silver under the earth. Verse 9, man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. So what they're doing right now, what the author is doing, or Job, is using mining as an example of how far man will go to get something that is valuable. I think of all the effort, all the skill, all the labor that goes into mining. If you want to go to the next slide, we have one of the most famous mines in North America uh, up in Leed, the Homestake Mine. It uh, is the deepest and largest and most, uh, one of the, I think, second most producing gold mine on our continent. And so mining here is an example of man's determination to go after that which he sees as valuable. And how, to, what, to what extent man will go to get gold and silver and things like that? Look at this diagram here. It might be kind of crazy. The like tannish colored thing on the, on the top is like the topography of the earth, the surface of the earth. And then all those green lines are horizontal mine shafts, and those red lines are vertical mine shafts. This is like if you could take a you know, 3D picture. Have you ever like seen people pour like molten aluminum or whatever down an anthill? And they like dig it up and you can kind of see. This is like if you did that, but to a mine, this is what it would look like. And if you go to the Homestake mine, they have this like 
metal 3D architecture sculpture thing of all the shafts in there. It's really, really cool. You should go. It's a great day trip. But the Homestake mine is 8,000 feet deep. So it's like a mile and a half. And it produced just under 43,000, sorry, 43,900,000 ounces of gold, which is about $87 like, billion today. And the total extent of all of its mine shafts is 370 miles. So like if you got in your car and drove to Sioux Falls, that's how long it would, at 75 miles an hour, that's how long it would take you to traverse the entire Homestake mine going 75 miles an hour, which you obviously couldn't do. That's, that's how big it is. Like, look how crazy we are, right? To go that, to that far, to get gold out of the ground, to seek after something that we know is so valuable. But in chapter, verse 12, sorry, of chapter 28, Job's gonna say, but wisdom is so much more valuable than that, than gold. Take a look at verse 12. Where shall wisdom be found? Like, we found the gold 8,000 miles under the earth, but where are you gonna find wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not in me. It cannot be bought with gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it nor can it be valued in pure gold. So wisdom is far more valuable than gold or silver or whatever, and we have no idea where to find it. We can go 8,000 feet under the earth and find gold, but we can't find wisdom, is what the, the argument the author is making. It's the most valuable thing in the world, but we have no power to obtain it. So like a, 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 maybe a modern illustration, but also tied to the homestake mine, would be like the vast reaches of human knowledge that the sciences have given us. So in the Homestake mine, I think it's one of these things, you know, roughly right here, you've got some weird structures in there. There is a laboratory. There's a large, it's called the Lux, Large Underground Xenon Experiment. Okay, <laughs> I literally have no idea what I'm about to read. And this Lux thing <laughs> is aimed to directly detect weekly, weekly interacting massive particle, dark matter interactions with ordinary matter on Earth. Despite the wealth of gravitational evidence supporting the existence of non-baryonic dark matter in the universe, dark matter particles in our galaxy have never been directly detected in the experiment. Lux utilized a 370 kilogram liquid xenon detection mass in a time-projected chamber to identify individual particle interactions, searching for faint dark matter interactions with unprecedented sensitivity. I didn't even bother reading the rest of the article, right? But this is insane. We're like trying to find subatomic particles that like may or may not even exist. We're that good. We're that smart. But where can wisdom be found? Right? Like, we can figure that out, but we can't find wisdom. Where can wisdom be found? The, the chapter ends, starting in verse 20, asking the same question. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death, the underworld, say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Verse 23, but God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. 
that to turn away from evil is understanding. So there's no source on earth from which we can get wisdom, which could rightly in many biblical contexts be termed like how to apply knowledge to practical living, how to live rightly based on, based on biblical truths, based on knowing God. Calvin said the root of wisdom was knowing God and knowing ourselves. Here I think wisdom even broadens to include the idea of making sense of our experience, right? making sense of our suffering, making sense of our prosperity even. That's, been, that's what Job needs. Job is a pretty righteous guy. He's been living quite wisely. In fact, this phrase, fear God, that is the beginning of wisdom, is said of Job in chapter one, that Job feared God and gave him honor and, and trusted him. So Job is living wisely, but he needs a different kind of wisdom, the wisdom to make sense of his suffering and his experience. This phrase is used by Proverbs, Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. There's like three or four other Proverbs that all include this. This exact phrase is included in the Psalms, right? So the fear of the Lord, turning to God, saying, humbly submitting ourselves, kneeling before him and saying, I'm only gonna figure this out with you. Even the book of Ecclesiastes, which like kind of one of its larger themes is that time and chance happen to us all, which Job would totally agree with. And sometimes fools prosper and the wise are crushed. Life's just a vapor slipping through our fingers. But it ends saying it does have meaning, even if we can't always see it. And here's how Ecclesiastes ends. Same as Job, same as Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So Job has received no answers from philosophy, from tradition, from his friends, from their theology. Why did God take all my livestock and destroy my servants? Why did God kill my 10 children? Why did God strike me with loathsome boils all over my body? Why have my neighbors deserted me? Why have my closest friends assaulted me with false words and pierced my soul with twisted arguments? Why was I born just to suffer? We can ask the exact same why questions. God, why have you given me no children? God, why have you not given me a husband or a wife yet? God, why did you allow me to be abused by family, friends, or neighbors? God, why did you give me cancer at age 50? God, why has my career been an unending series of disappointments? God, why haven't you saved my children? God, why did you give me an unbelieving spouse? God, why didn't you make me attractive? In all of our suffering, we want to answer the question of why. Make sense of this for me, God. Give me an answer. Explain what's going on. And God, we found out, is the only source of wisdom. He is the only place where we're going to receive this answer. Job, Job knows that God's the only one who can answer his questions. So how do we get that wisdom from God, especially this side of the cross? What does it mean to fear God? God is the answer to our questions, but he answers our why questions, not with a what, but with a who. So his, his answer to our whys is in the person the God-man Jesus Christ, who is wisdom himself from God. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 20 to 31. I've got it on the slide here. I might write, read a little bit before it, but we're going to focus on 26 to 31. Yep, sweet. Oh, lost it. This is a beautiful passage. I'm going to start in verse 16. This was all about wisdom. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It's the power of God. Like, the cross seems like such a dumb idea to those who are perishing. 
just like sent the savior, the hero, to like die. That's foolishness. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Right? Job's asking that. His friends, they certainly don't make the cut. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly, foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God in human form. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you, not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish, what doesn't make sense, in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, people like Job, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Call to mind Abraham and Sarah, God calling forth. There's nothing in her womb, and he brought forth life to create a people for himself that would end up fathering the Messiah. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we learn in 20 to 25 that Christ himself, this person, is the wisdom of God in person. And that in everything, we just read here, God does the opposite of what you would think is wise. God literally does the opposite. of Oh, this seems smart. This seems like a good plan. And then God does the thing that seems like total foolishness. Like this person's strong. This is power. This has influence. This has treasure and riches. And God goes and finds something else that is weak, pathetic, poor, not capable. God does the opposite so that nobody can boast. Christ himself became wisdom to us. And so God doesn't always tell us the meaning of our suffering. So the answer to Job's why is a non-answer. Job's not going to get to ever hear about the conversation in the throne room of God between like God and Satan, that God was vindicating his glory through Job's suffering. God doesn't always tell us the meaning behind our suffering. Instead, he humbled himself and became a man and entered into our suffering. He's willing to sit on the dung heap with us. He leads from the front, dragging his cross up Calvary's hill, and then bidding us come follow him and die that we might truly live. So can you, even if you don't get an answer to your why, can you trust a God like that? Can you trust a God who wouldn't shrink back from suffering, but actually took a crown of thorns, a Roman whip, a brutal cross, was buried. God answered, God's answer to your suffering is his beloved son. So where can wisdom be found? Where can the meaning behind your suffering, behind your trials, behind your experience, where can you find the answer to your why? In Jesus Christ, the son of God, who died for you, who was buried, who descended into Hades, who was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the father and is in the throne room 
to be your redeemer, to be your witness, to testify before God and vindicate you if you place your faith in him. He is himself the very wisdom from God. And that's, I mean, so thankful that we live on this side of the cross and can know that going into our suffering. Job never got to see that, though he had glimpses of it. We're just going to end with Job's final speech. If you still have Job open, this is chapter 29. He just has a summary defense of himself, kind of across three chapters. In chapter 29, he basically says, I, it's like a tired cry of despair. Like he seems exhausted from all this back and forth, from all the suffering he's endured, just mentally and spiritually totally burnt out and at the end of his rope. And he, he basically argues in chapter 29, I wish that I had the friendship of God again. He feels very, very far from God. Chapter 29, verse 2, Oh, that I was in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent. It's like the whole chapter, he's just kind of wishing that he, had, he was restored. He was back in the past when things hadn't gone awry. And then you look at chapter 30, he basically just turns to the, the present. But now my life's miserable. And it's hardly worth living anymore, especially because it feels like God has turned on me. It feels like I'm his enemy, right? That picture of God the huntsman chasing him down, capturing him, chasing him at his heels, or God the archer piercing him with arrows. He feels like he has become the enemy of God and the target of all of his wrath. And so in his final defense in chapter 31, Job basically calls down curse on himself to try to vindicate his righteousness. If I have done this, then may this bad thing happen to me. If this, then this. If I have really turned away widows hungry, then may the mountains fall on me. If I really have crushed the arm of the fatherless, then may God's wrath, you know, really crush. So that's, that's chapter 30. This if then, kind of like almost leaving it open to God, like vindicate me by just crushing me right now, if that's really what's going on. But if not, if nothing happens to me, then I must really be righteous. And then he requests a final audience, which is what we're going to turn to in weeks to come. Look at the very end of Job's speech in 31, verses 35 to 37. This is, he's at, this is the only place he can turn to. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him account of all my steps like a prince. I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and the furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So Job ends all the speaking thus far. He's going to have a few more speaking moments in the book with having no answers to his why and to his suffering, recognizing it's only going to be found in God. And so he's calling out to God for an audience. Lord, let me into your presence let me have a word for you. Let me speak with you face to face and sort this thing out. And what we'll do in the next few chapters, this, rant, this new friend, fourth friend named Elihu is going to show up and he's going to provide a real, real different perspective on what's been going on than Job's three friends. Then God himself is going to answer Job out of a whirlwind. And then there'll be a nice conclusion uh, to the whole narrative. So you can be on your own reading through Job, right, week to week. Read the sections we just preached on. 
start looking at the individual trees from the forest that we've hopefully painted for you this morning. And uh, if you have any questions and whatnot, then definitely bring them up, bring them to us. Um, this is really hard stuff to preach through. It's not like, hooray, Christ is risen, Easter morning, like type of Sundays. And it's good to go through that for a season. Yeah, please pray with me. Father, where can wisdom be found? In the fear of the Lord and following your commandments. Even when we don't understand why, we don't get a why from you, we still get your son who did not shirk suffering. He did not avoid it, but he entered into it. And so help us to trust the Savior who's willing to sit on the dung heap with us in the midst of our suffering and comfort us with his Holy Spirit, even if you never answer the why, which is very hard to do. And Lord, may us, as brothers and sisters of Christ, be willing to do the same when we see a brother or sister fall or be afflicted with physical ailments, emotional, distraught, spiritual suffering, that we would also be willing to sit with them, suffer with them, and present their request to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.